ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Hey folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, where the big boys play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Hello everyone, and welcome to Where the Big Boys Play. As ever, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing great. And a uh, very special show today, as we uh, look at uh, WrestleWar 89, we have not one, but two guests uh, on the line. So, first of all, allow me to introduce uh, Lee Morn. Have I said your name right there, Lee? Yeah, you have. Uh, how are you doing uh, on this evening, uh, Lee? I'm very tired, actually. I've gone from someone who previously slept a lot and didn't work, and now I'm working and I'm not sleeping at all, so I'm <laughs> exhausted, actually. Now, now Lee, uh, <laughs> I don't want to... I don't want to... <laughs> have a go at you in any way in uh, in the opening minute of the show here but on rpms there was some question of uh, of you um going on a blind date tonight what happened to that it um it has been postponed um i mean let's be honest valentine's day is coming up this is probably the worst time possible to be uh, making relationships with new people, I think. So, so, what, um, so, how did you postpone it? Did you say, I'd, "Sorry, uh, sorry, I can't no, make no, it's, it tonight"? No, it's through a mutual. It's through a mutual friend who, oh. um, an old school friend who went to London and came back home, and um, it's a, a thing where I'm her one male friend who's single. She has one female friend who's single. Of course, let's set them up. They'll be perfect together, obviously. <laughs> so that's kind of where it's all uh, come from. But rather than that. Um, I'm instead. I'm here talking about wrestling from the '80s, as opposed to uh, <laughs> but, but going out with girls, which is uh, what us nerds do, I suppose. Lee, on I, a Saturday night. I wanted to hear it from you. Uh, did Did you say sorry? I can't come out because I'm recording a wrestling podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly those words. I said, "Listen, I, I need to talk about the dynamic dudes. You're just going to have to wait." <laughs> and uh, our other guest on the line here, podcast veteran. Jason Mann from Wrestlespective. How are you doing, Jason? Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather, actually. I, um, I've been dealing with a sinus infection the last couple of days, which actually postponed a potential first date of mine um, yesterday. <laughs> so I'm sort of in a, a similar boat on that in the, uh, in the love front. But I'm here, and I'm excited to talk about the dynamic dudes and, of course, Ranger Ross. We cannot forget Ranger <laughs> Ross. So you guys have booked two two guests, one of whom is extremely tired and not going on a date, and a guy who's a bit sick and not going on a date. <laughs> um, so, uh, D- D- Jason, are you, uh, are you? I noticed you've been stuck in kind of 2000 WCW land recently. Are you happy to be getting back to the 80s here? Yeah, I. It's uh, it, it was kind of refreshing. This is, is kind of an odd show, which we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about um, as we get into it, but it's... Um, you know, kind of a nice um, 
you know, sample of the time, and of course you have, you know, one of the classic matches and angles of all time, so I'm always, uh, I can always get excited about some Flair Steamboat. Alright, well, uh, I look forward to talking uh, about that with you, um, but before we uh, do that, uh, it's, it's your first time on the show, Lee, and uh, as always, uh, we like to have, you know, get to know our guests a little bit, so uh, could you tell me a, a little bit about your background as a wrestling fan? Well, I have this um, memory in my head of sitting on my grandparents' living room floor, looking at a TV, and specifically the names Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. Now, I don't remember seeing them wrestle, um, well, wrestle each other, I should say. Um, My kind of memories of wrestling are from 1991, but I know that I was watching it before that, I just don't remember anything about it because um the british wrestling world of sport went off itv here in uh, 1988 and i i remember seeing it but I, I can't remember a specific match or anything that i saw then i've since seen a, um a lot of it um retrospectively but obviously the um the big boom period of the wwf was uh, just getting underway at that point or had been underway for a while um, although we didn't actually have Sky in our family, but the regional ITV station here, Tyne Tees, had WCW. What was that show called? Worldwide. It was a, it was a syndicated. It was worldwide. It was worldwide, right? With um, with Lance Russell doing sort of generic commentary on it. <laughs> no, no I, we never got Lance Russell. I I always remember uh, the commentators were Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura. Really? Mm. Oh, well, that did come um, later on. I remember around, just before Super Brawl 2, the show switched. We used to get a version that was just matches, no angles, no interviews, um, you know, no no promos, nothing like that. And it was Lance Russell doing very sort of localised announcing. And then one week, out of nowhere, we, we got the actual proper show. It, actually, it wasn't worldwide. It was just called Pro. Oh, right, yeah. Inter- well, International Pro, it was called. Th- there was a, um, yeah. Well, I, I actually got, re- I actually discovered that uh, WCW show right around that time. So I'm, I must have just missed that uh, yeah. Lance Russell show that you're talking about. Yeah, One it th- wasn't on for too long. Um, Lan- Lance Russell was on it for three months, four months maybe, and then they changed to a Young announcer. I I knew nothing of Lance Russell at the time, and I thought the guy was incredible. I thought he was great. I loved listening to him. And then one week, there was a new announcer on a young guy who I absolutely despised, and his name was Eric Bischoff. (laughs) (laughs) What annoyed me about him, the weird thing that really annoyed me, was that he would announce the weight in kilos as if he was trying to appeal to the English. <laughs> but as a, as a young kid, all I knew was what I'd already sort of digested, which was pounds. Mm. And it used to infuriate me. And and one odd little fact that I remember, I, I guess maybe the accents were a little unique to me as a kid. Um, I thought that Lance Russell's name was Let's Wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> And I used to think, man, imagine being born and 
given that name and then you become a wrestling announcer. That's <laughs> perfect. And I used to think that Eric Bischoff's name was Eric Fishoff. <laughs> right, there you go. I don't I know why. I wonder what ever became of that Eric Bischoff. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'll tell you something. Um, in our in our area, WCW vanished from the television in uh, 1992, somewhere around mid-92. Mm. We would get it very occasionally on a Saturday afternoon. Um, the I, I think the Hogan Flair match might have been on one time, the the, the first pay-per-view match. Um, but it used to be it used to be on like in London and things like that in in different sort of regions. Uh, it, w it was very frustrating trying to follow that show because what they do is they they uh, I I'm from Wales by the way. It, right, I should okay. I, where where are you from, Lee? Uh, I'm from a little town called Gisborne. It's, it's about twenty thirty minutes from Middlesbrough in the northeast. In northeast, so for our American. Uh, <laughs> For our American <laughs> listeners, uh, the UK is built of uh, three or four different countries, Wales, England, and Scotland. And uh, you're not too far away from Scotland there, in Middlesbrough, are you? Up north, uh, basically? About, about an, hour, an hour and a half, perhaps, from the border. Maybe two hours from the border. Yeah, so it would take me the best part of a day to drive to where you are, Lee. Which, yeah. for, for Chad, living in Georgia, is, uh, is basically his daily commute. <laughs> <laughs> Only about an hour daily commute. That's each way, though. Yeah, yeah but we used to. Um, our ITV is sort of divided up into regions, and and yeah. WCW in our region disappeared quite substantially. And it was it was a couple of years before I saw it again. And I remember seeing Nitro and absolutely tearing my hair out that this Eric Bischoff guy was still there. And I'm thinking, where's Lance Russell? Where? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, re in retrospect, Lance might not have been the best uh, for the Nitro years. The, the, the very difficult thing for me, because we had HTV in, uh, in Wales. Sorry, this is, a, this is quite an inside talk. Uh, it must be boring for some people. But trying to follow WCW, it, it used to be on at 3 in the morning. In uh, in Wales on like a Thursday night, I remember it was always double billed with a uh, Prisoner Cell Block H. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that with uh, the Hitman and her and yeah. So so you'd be trying to follow week after week, okay. And like I remember clearly, one week it was Dangerous Alliance, okay, um, and uh, they were leading up to the War Games match. Like the next week, it was Flair for the Gold in mid '93, and it just skipped like six months. They didn't show the pay-per-views. There was no way to see them. So it's very difficult. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, it would flip to like Saturday afternoon. And then it'd be like on Tuesday at 1 a.m. And then it'd be like cancelled. So it was very difficult to uh, to follow that. Yeah, it was. I remember um, Brian Pillman as a, a complete babyface, one of my heroes, one of my favorite wrestlers. And then not seeing WCW for several months, and I actually found out about his heel turn in a magazine because we didn't have the television show or anything like that, and being completely shocked. And in fact, the first, in fact, the only time that I ever saw the Hollywood Blondes whilst they were together was when I went on holiday to Ireland, and I was so excited that I was in a country that I could actually pick up WCW. Um, so, so it was it was very difficult to follow. Did you ever have um, DSF? DSF, what is that? 
no. a German sports channel. No, 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 we, we didn't. We also didn't have Sky, so I, um, I, what a lot of my wrestling watching was through the uh, WF Coliseum Home Videos. Um, yeah, which is uh, something that you know all about. But we, were you also watching WF at the time as well? Yeah, nice segue, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, not having um, Sky made it difficult. But we had, um, I had fake aunties and uncles and things like that 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 had Sky, and I would get very occasionally. I would get like um, a compilation of of TV shows, usually just like squash matches and you know the last. 15 minutes of a prime time wrestling and that kind of thing. I would, I would get the pay-per-views and the Saturday night's main events, the last few that were still there. Um, so that's how I kept up with it. Um, I, w- and we got the, uh, I got the app to mags and the WWF magazine and things like that. So I was watching it a lot, but we didn't actually get um, Sky ourselves till about 99. Yeah, I'm in exactly the same boat. I think my parents got it at 90. Not a little bit earlier than that, but basically we didn't have Sky, and I can't tell you, being a kid and being into wrestling, there's nothing more exciting than getting any glimpse that you can of WF yeah. programming during that period. Yeah. My uh, my mum actually got a satellite system um, a couple of years. My mum lives in a different town to me, um, and I would go visit her on a Friday night to watch Nitro and, and all of these things. Um, the very first match that I specifically saw on cable at our house was, uh, I, I remember it, Bret Hart and Booker T uh, on Nitro 99, if that sort of places it for anyone. Um, but yeah, I, I would go, I remember one time I went to an auntie's house um, with a friend of mine to watch Nitro on a Friday night. And the reason that we did that was because I was um, living with my grandparents at the time as a kid, and they'd gone out because we had relatives from Australia that had come to visit us. They came back to the house, and uh, my Australian Uncle Billy was a wrestling fan from the old days. And he came in to watch it with us, but but it had finished on, uh, what channel was it on? The Cartoon Network, TNT. Yeah. Um, TNT. And we were watching it on DSF. The problem with watching German satellite channels on a Friday evening after the watershed with older family relatives when you're quite young is the uh, content of some of the commercials <laughs> if you can imagine I know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> yeah so that was uh, quite the experience so uh, Lee, Lee did you uh, I mean did you have you basically been a fan ever since have you have you ever had any periods where you where you stopped watching or uh, I mean I know from my experience there have been periods where wrestling is extremely uncool especially here in the UK um, yeah. Did that affect your friendship at all? Um, only in a public sense. I mean, I've been a fan as long as I can remember, honestly. And there hasn't been a time where I haven't been a fan. But I've gone through those periods where I haven't admitted to being a fan. Yeah. I, th- I think most people can understand, you know, the school years. When the boom period was on here, 91, 92... All the kids at school loved it, and that was perfectly fine. Yeah. When it got to '95, and pff, no, it's all all that fake rubbish. You know, yeah. I definitely, as far as anyone knew, no, 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 no. But secretly, I was uh, <laughs> still obsessed with it. 
I actually, I didn't go to my, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, I'm going to have to. If I didn't go to my prom. Now, part of the reason I didn't go to my prom was because I didn't want to go to the prom. It wasn't because Nitro was on the same night. <laughs> but because Nitro was on the same night, that's what I did. It, it was around that sort of age where I first questioned, what am I doing? Why am I not at this prom? Why? But then I've never been like a sociable sort of extrovert or anything like that. And I think in many ways, wrestling is always kind of, it's just something that's been there. The, the thing it's, that surprises me most about that story, Lee, is the fact that you're in Middlesbrough and you're having proms. Like, well, <laughs> who has proms? <laughs> Was that something that you guys did? For me, Are you talking to us? No, it well, that I know. I know that in the United States, uh, it's a typical thing to have a high school prom, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I, it's not something that we ever kind of did here. Um, although I certainly we had like a six-form ball at one point. Um, but did, did you have like? Did people call it a prom, Lee? Yeah, they did actually. But the thing is, it wasn't something that we all looked to for a long time. It wasn't like oh, you know the end of school, there's the, the big prom coming up. It was just like, oh, by the way, we're going to have a prom in a couple of weeks. Hmm. Okay. But you've got to book in advance and come and have a posh meal and you need to wear a suit. And I was just, nah, it's not really for me, that. So you went and watched Nitro instead? <laughs> I'd, rather watch, I'd rather watch the insanity of Vince Russo and here you play are, out on a TV screen. Here you are ten years later blowing out your blind date for us. So, um, Okay, well... I'm uh, sitting here with a copy of the Complete Coliseum WWF Video Guide Volume 1, The Rock and Wrestling Years, 85 to 89. Um, and uh, there's a list of uh, authors here, and you're one of them, Lee. So can you tell I us am. a bit more about that? How did this come about? Well, I went to, I, I went to college in 2000, and uh, there was a guy there wearing a Kurt Angle t-shirt. This is just after this school period where wrestling's deeply uncool, and he's a guy um, publicly wearing this T-shirt, and, and wrestling became bigger here in 2000 and cooler anyway. And I just thought, I need to talk to this guy because I don't really know anyone that's into it. So I went up to him, and I went, hey, it's true, it's true, and pointed at his T-shirt, and he just blew me off completely. And I thought, what a dick. And years later, we wrote a book together. <laughs> who, who was no, but which one he, of the uh, authors was this that was uh, James Dixon he actually the um, the week after that I didn't take it any offence to it and he later admitted that he just thought I was some guy because it actually said it's true it's true on his t-shirt and he just thought I was some guy being a smart ass basically the week after that he, he showed up wearing uh, an NWO t-shirt and I said oh man that t-shirt is too sweet like a complete dark would do and he said because that was a WCW t-shirt and less popular and less well known that's how he knew that I wasn't being an idiot and kind of actually was a genuine fan um, he actually went on and became an independent wrestler uh, on the UK circuit for a while um, but as kind of happens when you do that you kind of fall out of being a fan and he um, retired um, a year ago, two years ago, something like that. And has 
now got more time to actually watch wrestling and has become a fan again. He wrote a book about the British promotion 1PW called All or Nothing. Hmm. And when he'd finished that, he'd kind of reawakened his own desire to uh, write, I guess, and wanted to combine that with this also reawakened desire of watching old pro wrestling from the 80s, from the 90s. And uh, and he basically just got in touch with me and, had, and said, how do you fancy writing some reviews? And that's how it all started, basically. And, and it's the monster it's become now. It was only supposed to be one book. But there's just so so many Colosseum tapes and so much content to get through that it's become the series that it is now. Yeah, and I, well, I, I'm just flicking through this one, and it's, I mean, it's a good, uh, you know, 300, 400 pages long, and um, you don't miss uh, any of the tapes, uh, even even the ones that didn't come out here in the UK. You you guys cover them, right? Every single yeah. One. We've been very thorough with that, and we've absolutely insisted. James is actually the one that's um, doing that research, and it's driving him absolutely potty every time that we find one very rare tape. Like, um, there's a there's a, a guide to how to play WrestleMania, the arcade game. It's 19 minutes long, <laughs> but, it, but it came out as a tape, so we have to review it, and I've had the... Uh, dubious privilege of doing that for uh, Volume 3 coming soon. Is that the NES game, the NES game? It's, um, it was it was an acclaimed game uh, in the arcades that was parted, no, it was a, a midway game, parted oh. by acclaim for... Is that the one with the, with the uh, kind of photorealistic graphics with Lex Luger? Yeah, it's, it, it's the Mortal Kombat one. Oh, the first one for um, 32X and the original PlayStation and all that. The old NES game is awful as well. Both of those WrestleMania <laughs> games are really bad. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, I've uh, I've kind of been... Uh, I've read most of this book uh, now, and um, one of the things I, I couldn't help notice, Lee, and this, this is not uh, intended as a criticism, uh, really, but it's something that's difficult to uh, not to notice, is that there are... Um, five or six different authors and you each have very kind of different um, styles and voices um, which becomes apparent as you read through it I, I mean how did how do you think that uh, works as a book when you have so many um, kind of uh, different people do, doing the reviews and how, also how did you work work out who was going to do what okay well um, I'm going to admit to something that actually is admitted to later on the um the way it came together firstly um bob dalstrom who's who's credited in the book he's doing the artwork yeah and there's principally there's just three of us that um do the reviews hmm. there was um excuse me there was a guy um who did some of the bios for us very early on who yeah. um dropped out because of, I think he he was just too busy with real life, basically. Um, was this Bernard Rage? Yeah, it was. Um, he kind of came in just to kind of get the process going a bit quicker and all of that. Um, but there's there's basically there's me, there's James, and there's Arnold um, mm. who do the reviews. Arnold um, was reviewing for a long time uh, online. Was doing pay per view reviews and things. 
So it was obviously very, um, and James and him have known each other for a lot of years. And it was obviously um, an easy choice to say, let's get Arnold to do it because he's experienced at writing and he's uh, he's already got a fair bit of content. Yeah. Um, Steve that is in the book is James, if that makes sense. I see. That was... Right. The thing is, that makes what sense. happened w- was he decided that Arnold was quite into his uh, play-by-play and the kind of more what you would think of when you think of a wrestling review, a bit more traditional. Mm-hmm. Whereas he said, my reviews tended to be a lot more analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't want to, James didn't want to be the same. He didn't want to look like he was copying either of us. I pointed to him a, a website that I used to write for with a guy coincidentally called Steve, who was a real person. But he and I used to do music reviews in a much more sort of informal, conversational tone. Right. And James decided that he wanted to do it that way because he is someone that's always been sort of conflicted about, particularly about the WWF of the 80s and 90s, where sometimes he enjoys the really awful stuff and sometimes he hates it and he's very kind of conflicted about what to him is good. I mean, just to explain for anyone who doesn't have have this book, and I, I I would recommend picking it up because it's a one of a kind item, really. Especially if you were into collecting tapes as I was. Um, th- by the way, this would have been great ten years ago <laughs> when yeah. I was actually uh, much more active in collecting tapes. But so was I. Funnily enough, um, I I went on this big thing in sort of the mid two thousands of collecting all the, including the imported tapes and things like that. And by the time that James had said, hey, let's write a book, I, I was like, oh, so I have to watch all this stuff again. <sighs> yeah, well, I, I basically uh, blew almost my entire student loan on wrestling videos, which is uh, <laughs> something I shouldn't admit to, really. Um, yeah, but just to explain, uh, James uh, Dixon, um, a, a lot of the reviews in the book are written as if they're in a dialogue between two different people, between uh, JD, who is James... Uh, Dixon and this evil Steve, but you're, you're telling me that it's almost like a split personality thing, where these are two different voices from his, two different kind of ways of thinking about wrestling in his mind, which kind of yeah, makes a was, lot more sense. That was that was kind of the goal, yeah, because like I said, there was there's a part of him that that can see something and, and know that it's really bad, but there's a part of him that secretly enjoys it. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that I found um, in the book is that. Um, there was a there is this contrast between the way that you Lee re- review matches, the way that Arnold Furiester reviews matches, um, and uh, James Dixon as JD in those dialogues, and then the way that uh, his kind of evil Steve uh, persona does it, and the kind of voice we get from um, Bernard Rage in the in the kind of little profiles, um, and there are a lot more. How can I put this? They're kind of quite snarky in the kind of Scott Keith vein. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. We um we got a review in Fighting Spirit magazine FSM that said pretty much the first, the, the same thing. Mm. And I, I think um John List has reviewed us as well and and has pretty much echoed those sentiments. Um I think you'll probably find as the books go along that kind of changes a little bit. Um by volume three 
um, James is just writing by himself because he thinks that, which which I agree with that it's kind of it was a bit of an experiment and it's kind of run its course now the um, the two personalities kind of thing. So I think it's a bit more it's a bit tighter and a bit more focused now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a, um, I think it's a, it's a good book. Um, but for me, there's something about that kind of, uh, and I, I understand what he was going for there. But I think there's something about that Scott Keith kind of voice that is a little bit, it is a little bit early two thousands. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I remember very early on that I, I wanted to be a lot sort of more dry I guess and a lot more mm-hmm. factual but they were kind of worried that it would be dull and boring and it needed because it's you know the wacky world of wrestling let's make it a bit more entertaining and that kind of thing but I think we're, I think it's a bit more focused now and it's colourful without being too colourful you know one of the problems that I had with it I thought there was too much um, swearing in it and things like that mm. um, but generally I've tried not to where I'm concerned with the with the reviews that they that those guys submit, I tend to just you know check over that stuff for for factual things. I try not to. I mean, it's their book as much as it is mine, and I don't want to sort of dictate to them. Oh no, let's not let's not do it a certain way. Let's do it the way that I want to do it because it's you know it's a collaborative thing. But we do take on board you know the the sort of criticisms, and I think the books, every book that we've we've got, we've felt is better and better than the last one looks better reads better so you know we're very pleased with how it's going yeah and it, i will uh, i will definitely be picking uh, all all of them up, all of all of them up in due course um you know once they're out in print i, I don't uh, go in for the kindles or anything so i'm waiting for the for the print copies of of, of all of them um just before we go on to wrestle war uh, chad jason do, do you have any questions for lee here uh, Lee, uh, I'm sure you mentioned maybe at the end, but for anyone who's curious now, is there like a website or uh, something that they can, um, you know, check check out for the book if they hadn't heard about it? I, I'm, I wasn't familiar with this series, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, we we sell our books through um, a publisher called Lulu.com, um, and we also sell our books on Kindle through Amazon, which is any Amazon, you know, UK, US, whatever. Um, We've been building a website at historyofwrestling.info because some bastard took .com. Um, but all of our news, our information um, about when the books are ready is there. There's also, we're putting together a, a, a guide to every Coliseum tape uh, online as like a reference piece because we've we found it very difficult, you know, getting catalogue numbers and just little things like that, we know how obsessive that wrestling fans can be and sometimes you get like a catalogue number that's incorrect or or the same tape will come out in the UK and the US and the catalogue number will be different on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so we're putting together a, a website that's hopefully going to be something of a resource for people as well as a place for us to to uh, to advertise our books and things like that and that's historyofwrestling.info. Um, I don't like saying that we're currently building it because it's it just makes me think of those awful uh, GeoCities websites with you know the little yeah. <laughs> the hard hat and the crane and all of that. But it's um, it's looking pretty good, and we've also got a Twitter um, which is at WWF Video Guide, 
um, which doesn't really fit because we we want its history of wrestling, but it was too long. <clears throat> I, I, I will also say, say as well. I mean, back in the day, it was so hard to find certain stuff. I, I remember. Um, I remember. Uh, all I wanted to buy was uh, Macho Madness VHS. Okay, and um, uh, the best of WWF Volume Seventeen. And I, I swear now, it must have taken me a year to find those two tapes. <laughs> so it was it was very difficult um, to find information and. Um, you know, to find people to get these off, other than from eBay and all of the rest of it. Yeah, there's still um, there's still quite a few uh, Coliseum tapes that I don't have. Partly owing to the fact that once I started working regularly, um, I you know you lose you lose time, and suddenly this collecting these becomes less of an obsession. And um, but to to answer an earlier question that you asked, the way that we sort of delegate who does what tapes generally comes down to who owns them. Mm. Particularly, the American ones that I'd got imported that Arnold and James didn't have access to kind of became mine by default. Arnold generally is doing the pay-per-views, so that's not like an issue. And then we just sort of claim which ones we fancy or, or we kind of... Uh, pawn off really terrible ones on each other just as a gag um, but I, I did insist that James watch the Ken Patera the Ken Patera story um, because he was someone that had previously if, if you were a WWF fan in the UK from when it came on television and when the Coliseum tape started coming out all you really know of him is the post jail period mm. if you remember where he he no longer had bleached hair and he'd lost the, the definition. He wasn't a strong man anymore. And he was kind of, if, if you're like a fan just looking in, he was kind of terrible. You know, he wasn't very colourful. He, he just wasn't very good. He was losing squash matches and, and things like that. But that was one of the tapes that to me was like a real eye-opener because like here's Patera before he went to jail with the bleach blonde hair and this huge rippling chest and it, it you know, and he and he was a a good worker. And there's the fascinating story of um, what they did with him after he came out of jail and all of this kind of thing. And I think that um, James really sort of turned the corner on Patera, having seen that. Um, so that's kind of how it works. You know, sometimes I'll I'll recommend a tape because I think it's something they'll enjoy, or I'll recommend a tape because it's something that I can't bear to watch. So. <laughs> And it, I mean, I think Patero is a guy who's currently undergoing major reevaluation from quite a few people in the kind of community. I know our friend uh, Dylan from the PWO board is uh, a little obsessed with Ken Patera. <laughs> Ch Chad, do you have any questions for Lee? Um, I don't. Let's go ahead and start out with Wrestle War. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot. That was very interesting, Lee. Uh, so, so thanks for that. Um, just before we get into uh, Wrestle War here, um, I have uh, I just uh, one of the things that we often do on the show is um, go through a couple of the news uh, letters written by Dave Meltzer uh, around this period, um, just for a kind of see what's happening behind the scenes. So this is from the April seventeenth uh, newsletter, um, and in that newsletter the, there are the results results of a poll from the Observer readership. Um, about WrestleMania 6 and Clash of the Champions uh, 
sorry, WrestleMania 5 and Clash of the Champions 6. Um, so they basically go through various different categories and give thumbs up or thumbs down and uh, give different kind of, um, you know, their picks for what the best match on the night was, etc. And it's safe to say that the Observer readers were strongly, and I mean strongly, pro uh, NWA and anti-WWF at this time. Um, so d just as one example, they give 446 thumbs up for Clash 6, um, with only 9 thumbs down. But WrestleMania 5 got 78 thumbs up, but, uh, but 371 thumbs down for WrestleMania 5. Um, which is a little heartbreaking for me because WrestleMania 5 was uh, one of my childhood shows. I watched it over and over again. Um, anybody surprised by that result? Uh, not uh, given uh, the sentiment of the Observer audience at the time, but I think um, I, I would expect a fair, more fair-minded audience would be more... The WrestleMania number would be slightly better, you know, more half up, half down, or maybe... <clears throat> 60% up, 40% down, that kind of thing. Yeah, and a, a little bit of the subtext of that as well is that, um, from what I can make out, the Observer kind of reader base were big on Savage and obviously down on Hogan. And the way that uh, match ends at uh, WrestleMania 5 with multiple elbow drops and uh, Hulk still hulking up, uh, they were pretty annoyed at that finish because they thought it damaged, uh, you know, it hurt Savage. Something that I would say about that show is um, to to tie it into the Coliseum tapes, the um, the edited version that I have, the Coliseum version, is a lot better than the version I saw years later, which was the original pay-per-view version, which um, I think it's about three and a half hours long, uncut, and it's rotten to sit through. That it's very boring. There's a very stifled atmosphere. Um, Clip, clip down, it's a lot better. I think it's one of the few tapes that actually benefits from that kind of leaving certain matches um, or parts of matches on the cutting room floor. But um, but I do have a, a very soft spot for the uh, Hogan Savage match personally. And I was I was never a big Hogan fan, but I do like that match a lot. The, the one other thing I'll say about WrestleMania Five is um, I never understood Run DMC on that show. Right, I can understand why they had Run DMC there. What I don't understand is why neither. Uh, run nor uh, DMC uh, cut any verses. They don't do any rapping. They just say yo, WrestleMania yo 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 over and over again. <laughs> Un unless that was cut, unless their actual rapping was cut. Um, it's something I could never get my head around as both a fan of uh, rap and of wrestling. Um, so uh, the other thing that, uh, the other noteworthy thing from this particular newsletter is that um, the committee of Flair. Uh, Gilbert, Jim Ross, Kevin Sullivan, Jim Hurd and Jim Barnett have now firmly taken over the booking um, and they've changed basically all of George Scott's uh, booking uh, which he'd already planned just before leaving. Um, moving on to the April 24th newsletter. Um, Barry Windham has officially left the uh, NWA now um, and to Chad it feels to me that he's been gone for ages. Well, yeah, well, we hadn't seen, you know, we did see him at Shottown Rumble in February, so. Well, if you remember, at that show, he got in, he injured his hand or something, um, so he's actually been out injured, which is why we haven't seen him. But at the same time, they hadn't mentioned him at all on air, 
um, which Wyndham wasn't very happy about, and they all they didn't give him an angle to explain his injury, um, and he was also, to quote Mel Meltzer, miffed that he wasn't on the booking committee, um, which is a little bit surprising. I don't think Wyndham was a natural guy you'd think of to be on a booking committee. Um, Wind so Wyndham had been Dusty's um, lieutenant booker, hadn't he? I think in in eighty six. Was he really? See, I thought J J Dillon was the assistant booker. I think um, I think Barry Wyndham was. I think Wyndham had it made because he was um, Flair's favourite opponent, and I think th I'm almost certain that he was uh, helping Dusty book at one point. Anyone else know anybody? I, I I've never heard of that before. Uh, I I know they have a close relationship. So that doesn't surprise me, um, Wyndham and Dusty, but I've never heard that specifically either. See, I, I thought J.J. Dillon was the, was the assistant booker through that whole period, um, although it does kind of make sense because uh, they yeah, were big buddies uh, in Florida as well. Yeah, and as they're expanding, they're, you know, there may be more than one person who is an assistant booker. You know, obviously, 86 to 87 was a period where they added Florida and they added Kansas City and they added you know, uh, Mid-South, a lot of towns, a lot of um, more duties, so they may have spread that out a little bit. So moving on, moving on uh, they made some signings during this period. Um, they signed Tama, uh, a.k.a. the Tonga Kid, um, the, the islander who wasn't Haku, who's actually the twin brother of Fatu from the Samoan Swap team. Um, they also signed Terry Funk on a short-term deal, and there's talk of the Rock and Roll Express coming back, although Meltzer says he can't see any reason for them to sign the Rock and Roll Express at this time. Which I thought was an interesting little comment from him. Uh, Meltzer's very critical of the, of the uh, co-promotion of the Wrestle War with the Oak Ridge Boys gig <laughs> that we're <laughs> going to be seeing coming up, and uh, this is a you know month or so before uh, the show. But uh, Meltzer basically thinks that um, this is going to be a disaster. He says that it's been tried dozens and dozens of times before, where they co-promote wrestling and music. And it always ends in disaster. And he actually um, goes through... This goes on for like a page or so when he lists all the different times when different bookers have tried to do this. Um, he does say, though, that the Oak Ridge Boys can't possibly be worse than Run DMC, Robert Downey Jr., and Rockin' Robin from uh, WrestleMania Five. Now, <laughs> um, I think that he may be uh, over-optimistic there. Because uh, if I was to pick between... 30 minutes of the Oak Ridge Boys, or that Piper Downey Jr. skip from uh, WrestleMania 5 and Run DMC saying, oh baby, I know which one I pick. Any votes for the Oak Ridge Boys? I don't know, I, but I, that performance is on YouTube, so we, you know, we, could all vote. <coughs> we could all check for ourselves. <laughs> I, I, I watched a little bit of it earlier, just, you know, I thought... I'll do my research, and I, I I couldn't stomach it, to be honest. And yet, you know, Meltzer was writing this in 89. This is 10 years before Megadeth and Kiss. They were still making these mistakes. It's a, it is a mistake. There's no other way to look at it. Um, I, I think it depends on how it's used. I mean, if it's an attraction after the show or whatever, I don't think it's... I, I don't see how it hurts. I mean, it, I you know... Um, Wrestling fans won't like it, but wrestling fans don't like anything that's not, you know, that's out of the box. So, um, I mean, if they're heavily involved in the show and if they're dominating and it's a big deal, then, yeah, I can see where that that's a hindrance. But if it's just 
you know, if it's a concert after show, if it's something that you can just kind of look away for five minutes or, or, or at the end of the show where you don't have to stick around, then I don't see it really being a big problem. But, 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 but Jason, Jason th- think about it like Alec Baldwin from uh, 30 Rock or something. You know, he's sitting there with all his demographics and the way they cross over and stuff. And here you're basically saying, we're looking for people who are not only NWA wrestling fans, but also fans of the Oak Ridge Boys. I mean, that's... I can't imagine that that's probably like one in every 5,000 people. Possibly even less than that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. They're in Nashville. They're, um, I mean, they're the, they're the Southern Wrestling Promotion. I, I don't know how popular the Oak Ridge Boys were at this time, but I, you know, I don't think it's... I'm not saying it's like great or even good, but I don't. I, I just don't see it as a disaster. I guess. Chad, uh, I think also. I think there. I think there is a difference between um, Kid Rocky in up WrestleMania time doing a song that nobody wants to hear, and Motorhead playing Triple H's theme music when he comes to the ring. I think that's kind of cool. Chad, any of your family Oak Ridge uh, Boys fans? Um, I did have a former co-worker that actually would follow like the Oak Ridge Boys kind of kind of I guess like the equivalent of people that follow used to follow like the Grateful Dead like if they were anywhere within the southeast on a lot of weekends he would actually go and listen to the Oak Ridge Boys Uh, but as I told you last night on a private message uh, I tapped out on their performance here as well so I will also admit that for the first time ever, and I'm I'm a purist, you know, I I want to get I hack to fast forward it. There's no way I'm sitting through. Yeah, this was of all the shows we've done, um, including the pre-shows. If they've been on the tape, I've been watching. This was the first time. Well, I, there was that one that showed like the Magnum TA retrospective or whatever. Yeah, it was matches we'd just seen. But uh, so so I guess this was the second time. But yeah, I hit the fast forward. So the May the first uh, newsletter here, and uh, Chad, you're gonna be beside yourself when you find this out. Johnny Weaver has quit the promotion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who are they gonna have as a big special guest? Uh, special guest ref or special guest ring announcer now? But Johnny, I guess. Yeah, I mean Weaver. It, it, I guess I don't. I would kind of like to know sort of what people would think would be the the Georgia equivalent of Johnny Weaver because I know like uh, Dylan on the board he talks about like in Charleston you know people still talk about Johnny Weaver today so he was a huge name I guess in the Carolinas but he's just somebody that obviously was before my time and I think if you weren't based in the Carolinas, it's just somebody you really don't know or recognize. I mean, maybe Bob Armstrong, but uh, I think because Bob came on uh, a little bit later and had the Smoky Mountain run and stuff like that, he's more well-known. But uh, I don't know who would be kind of the Georgia wrestling equivalent to Johnny Weaver. I also think that he never really got much of a big reaction whenever we have seen him, you know, whenever they did wheel him out as as a kind of guest. Uh, it's not like the crowd were going wild for him. It's not like when Bruno would make sporadic appearances in the mid or late 80s, for example. Yeah, right, right. I can see that too. Yep. Um, uh, but I guess in the context of 1989, this is just the last remnants of the Crockett office leaving, basically. The last kind of um, 
I, I don't know if um, Jim and David Crockett are still knocking around, um, but they seem to have quietly been sidelined as well. Um, Kendall Wyndham no-showed a few dates and maybe history. Um, the Tonga Kid debuted, but then, for reasons that Meltzer doesn't say, was immediately sacked um, before the show even aired. So, the Tonga Kid is gone. Um, Terry Gordy has uh, been signed on a short-term deal, as we're about to see. And um, then, in the May 8th uh, newsletter, there's not much of... Um, there's not much of note uh, here, but he said that nobody is expecting WrestleWar to do big business on pay-per-view, and uh, he's blaming that partly on the Oak Ridge boys, um, which is, um, I guess, a self-fulfilling thing, though. If, if Meltzer said the show's not going to do well because of the Oak Ridge boys, and then it doesn't do well, uh, I guess it's proving him right. So, <laughs> 50 minutes in here, and we're starting our review of WrestleWar. Are you guys ready? Um, we we started off with a 30-minute countdown, and I'm not going to go through this in any great detail. Um, did anybody else watch this 30-minute countdown? Did you have it? I didn't you? have it. You didn't have it? Did no, you have it, Jason? I, I, I did not have it either. I watched a couple of um, Flair Steamboat promos that I think were included, but I didn't see the whole thing. Did you have it, Lee? I think... I think I've seen it, but um, I don't remember it. Well, st basically, this was uh, consisted of promos from all the feuds, and they they basically every single featured feud they had both guys giving promos. Uh, we got a great little promo from Michael Hayes in there, where he talks about um, he talks about basically all the girls in the crowd wanting to um, do naughty things with him, and um, <laughs> he. Yeah, he just uh, you know tells Luger he he makes a big point of saying that he's going to do this on his own without any help from the Freebirds. Um, that we see clips of um, Sting versus Rotunda and Sting versus Rip Morgan, which is that match that we didn't see from Clash Six, uh, Chad. So it was quite nice to see um, a bit more of Sting's getting the TV title because uh, we've kind of missed it on these shows. Um, then we get a ridiculous Iron Sheik promo, which is totally incoherent, um, and uh, also a promo from the Oak Ridge Boys um, that made me completely not want to watch their gig. Um, so, it's May the 7th, 1989, at the Nashville Municipal Coliseum. Commentators are Jim Ross and Bob Coddle. Um, and as things start out here, the Oak Ridge Boys sing the National Anthem which was uh, more or less the moment when I decided that I will not be watching uh, whatever they do later on. Um, but at least they sung it live. Topical. <laughs> so you are saying that the Oak Ridge Boys are better than Beyonce, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Actually, I, my, uh, my wife is a massive uh, Beyonce fan. She was... Um, she... Uh, yeah, I can't speak out against Beyonce because uh, right. she, she won't be very happy. Um, during this, I see a woman uh, with terrific 80s hair in the crowd. So, I don't think there's much to say about this. Uh, how, what do you think of the rendition of the uh, National Anthem here? I thought it was okay. I mean, it was fine. I'll I, I tell you, I, I do hate 
one thing that I'll say with any national anthem, if you just sing the song, that's fine with me. I hate any, uh, I, I am kind of a traditionalist in that I hate when people try to uh, insert certain uh, characteristics of their own repertoire into the singing of the American National Anthem. So that really uh, turns me off pretty quick. Mine did not include. Mine was the was the home video release. So mine oh. had uh, didn't include that and had a, a decent number of the matches were, were clipped. Oh, oh that would be interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, the, the, the first match here is um, it was announced... And all, and they even had promos on the countdown um, as JYD versus the Great Muta. Now I was a little puzzled by this chair because JYD was meant to be fired according to Meltzer, but somehow he's managed to find his way back. Um, I guess after they saw the reaction of uh, of him on the last show, I, I don't know. Um, but basically, he's definitely fired now because he's no showed again without any explanation. You know, man, I was on my way to North Kakalaka, by the way of South Kakalaka, Virginia, all those places, and my telephone left those Um, And Doug Gilbert takes his spot. So uh, instead of JYD versus the Great Muta, we get Doug Gilbert versus the Great Muta. And uh, Doug Gilbert is Eddie Gilbert's little brother. And I have to say, as, as things start out, he looks a little bit special. <laughs> uh, Great Muta is with Gary Hart. Um... As things start out here, Muta is a little bit confused to see uh, Gilbert in the ring. And he kind of shows a, as if he was expecting JYD. Um, then he karate kicks him in the face. Gilbert gets a clothesline in. Muta goes to the eyes. We get a snap mare, an elbow drop, uh, a springboard elbow. I think I call that right. Um, a nerve hold. Gilbert slams Muta into the mat. We get a backbreaker by Muta. He misses a moonsault but lands on his feet. Flying body press to the outside, backbreaker again, moonsault for the pin in three minutes. Any thoughts? Uh, I'll go to you first, Jason. Um, you can tell that that Muda's um really getting over with the crowd. If people stand up for his entrance, they seem invested in him. Their um, you know, his high spots are getting recognition. Um, you know, he obviously hasn't been in there very long, so you can tell that the character is connecting with the crowd. Um, also, I think it's funny that uh, JR pronounces it Muta, you know, it's very um, very drawn out uh, instead of the traditional Muta, or however you pronounce it, but um, you know, it's, um, it's what it is. Uh, Doug Gilbert also, from the neck down, looks a lot like Jerry Lawler. Lee, any thoughts? Um, I I thought it was um, a good way to start the show because, um, like Jason said, Moot is obviously getting very popular with the crowd. He's getting over there, reacting. They they pop big. There's a he does a a dive to the outside that that draws a really big reaction. And uh, something I, I wanted to ask actually, because I don't know this. At one point, um, Eddie Gilbert comes out. Is that is this the the starting point of Mooter's issue with Eddie Gilbert and and with Sting? Mm, I, I don't. I don't know that. Did anybody else? I, I mean, I don't know on TV if they'd been teasing it um, since then, but I, I definitely think as far as what we've seen on the super shows, this kind of started. Uh, you started kickstarting that, and obviously that'll 
play a big portion in our shows coming up that we reviewed. So uh, if they have been teasing it on TV, it'd been in between Clash uh, 6 and this show. Um, but this was the first kind of major uh, kind of tease of that on a, on a uh, super show. What do you think of this one, Chad? Um, I mean, it was essentially a squash. It was okay. Uh, I did like Bob Cottle being baffled that Muda had to miss uh, two different colors. Uh, <laughs> how much have you watched of uh, Doug Gilbert card? Like, uh, now, uh, this may be the first time I've ever seen him. Okay, he's he's really somebody that like I don't know. I can't I can't ever decide whether I like him or not. And I don't know if that's because he obviously carries the last name Gilbert, so I'm constantly comparing him to Eddie. Or sometimes I know in some of the USWA footage that I've watched, um, it just seems like he's kind of trying too hard in some of it. But then sometimes he can be, you know, really good. Uh, probably my favorite thing from Doug Gilbert, since I, I don't even know if we'll ever see him again. I'll actually be surprised, but my favorite memory of Doug Gilbert, and this is something you should uh, look up, Parv. I think you'll like it. It's probably on YouTube. Is uh, It was on like a U.S. I, I, they weren't called the USWA show, but it's Memphis in maybe 99 or 2000, so it, it's way far removed from the glory days, but they still did the Saturday morning show. And Doug Gilbert goes on there, and he's it being interviewed by Dave Brown, and he uh, he pretty much uh, pretty much shoots like legitimately shoots on the program and starts talking about people smoking crack in the back and stuff like that. And Jerry shoots on Brian Christopher uh, being Jerry Lawler's son, and just the look on D- uh, Dave Brown's face—he's completely appalled and then cuts him off. It's it's hilarious. I, I'll definitely watch that because I I I have loved the Dave Brown that I've seen so far. Yeah, you'll love this. I mean, he, Dave is absolutely appalled at uh, what Doug is saying about all this. But uh, the, yeah, but as far as this match, it was fine. It's a squash match. Muda looked good. That actually reminds me, uh, Lee, real real uh, quickly. I I would be remiss of me not to ask you this. Uh, being a big uh, Coliseum home video guy, but uh, after watching all those home videos, what's your appreciation of Sean Mooney at this point? <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> I I was um, I have a soft spot for for Sean Mooney in the sense that he was one of the guys who was on TV when I was first a fan. He is camp and. Ill-educated. His commentary is unenthused, um, but there's there's still something sort of likable about him to me. Yeah, but he uh, is. Uh, but he's he wasn't very good. He's a bit. He's, of a, he was, he's a bit of a slacker, you could say. <laughs> yeah, he's um he's a lot preferable to some of the guys they have now. He was certainly a lot more preferable than uh, Todd Pettengill. Yeah, I'll say oh, that. God. That's n- that's not much of a compliment, I don't think. But he he was better than Todd Pettengill. I, I think if you go down that line, you know, Craig Craig uh, DeGeorge, uh, Sean Mooney, Pettengill, and I guess it would be what Kevin Kelly after that in that particular yeah, role. Yeah, and I think Michael Cole in '99, very early on, had that role. I I think Mooney is the pick of them. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it is a sad bunch to choose from, <laughs> let's be honest. But I I, I would agree. 
Oh, sorry. I, 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 I had to ask you that because uh, Mooney's a little kind of pet uh, kind of uh, love of mine. Um, all right. So uh, Lance Russell is with Ric Flair now, and he says that um, Steamboat uh, is the greatest wrestler uh, on the face of the earth, um, and basically says, you know, look out type thing. Um, signs of Flair being a bit more faceish here, maybe. Yeah, this this promo uh, definitely Flair was given uh, kind of respect his opponent and showing more glimpses of uh, being more of a face. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't being completely like Hulk Hogan out there, you know, hand slapping the fans. But we were seeing uh, more face characteristics than what we had seen in a while from Flair. Um. So. Butch Reed enters now, and uh, I immediately note where is Gary Hart, because I, I thought Gary Hart was meant to be managing Butch Reed at this point, um, with some rather funky music. Um, and he is taking on, everybody all together, Ranger Ross. <laughs> it's Ranger Ross again. I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> as this marked, <laughs> I couldn't... Really? <laughs> Have you you haven't watched Clash Seven yet, right, Parv? No, I'm watching it tonight. I'm watching it later. Oh, I can't wait till you uh, realize who Ranger Raw's faces in that uh, in that match. So, as this match starts out, Ranger Ross and I, I literally was marking out to be honest. Um, he starts doing the Rick Rude swivel. Did anybody else notice yeah. this? Yes, he did the exact like Rude, uh, yeah, swivel pose. Um, oh man, Ranger Ross! Pretty, pretty much all this was missing was him calling somebody a sweat hog, and it would have been uh, exactly how Rude does it. So we, we got a headlock to uh, a headlock by Ross to start here. Uh, he gets a hip toss in, and then he starts shucking and jiving. Now, as you know, I hate dancing from anyone really, um, but like, what's this guy's deal? He's meant to be a ranger in the army, so why is he doing dance moves? Why is he doing swiveling? I, I don't understand his characterization. I don't understand who Rager Ross is even meant to be, to be honest. We also got some karate, uh, too. So I guess they teach uh, martial arts in the ranger school now. Reed makes a comeback with a clothesline, and Teddy Long comes down to ringside with a notepad. He's currently unemployed, we're told, um, after being fired as a ref, and he has a visitor card. Uh, that's probably the most interesting thing that happens in that match. In this match, to be honest, uh, Reed's been on top for a while with some steady and solid uh, offense uh, before cinching into a chin lock. Ranger Ross comes back with kung fu and drop kicks. Reed gets a suplex and hits his shoulder block from the top for one, two, three. Um, Chad, feelings on this one? Yeah, th this. Uh this is kind of an interesting match because as I watched it live, uh, Capetta constantly gives time calls for this match. Um, and there was a time when he, he said five minutes had gone back and I, I had to rewind the tape. I, I thought for sure he mistakenly said five minutes and it had really been 15, mm. but I went back and it, it was confirmed that it was only five minutes. Uh, it, this may be the first uh, right up to the finish. I think maybe uh, some of the worst 
stuff we've seen on one of these shows. Just miscommunication, uh, shitty loose offense, uh, long extended headlocks and stuff like that. Uh, but then at the very end, uh, shockingly, the match got half decent. Ross delivered two drop kicks, and he leapt uh, over the top rope and landed on his feet on the floor, which was kind of athletic. Uh, and then as soon as he came back in, Butch kicked him right in the face and then hit the shoulder block for the win. So the last 30 seconds of this match was uh, pre- pretty good, actually, but the first six and a half were absolutely terrible. So not, you know, certainly not good overall. You know, it's, it's funny you said that because my uh, my one note in this match is it was given too long, seven minutes, felt like 17. So yeah, almost exactly yeah, them, the same thing. Them thought. first five minutes were brutal. Lee, any thoughts on this one? I just kind of agree for what well, for what they were doing. It was uh, too long. I thought it was interesting that um, Muta basically dominated his match and then won. Whereas in this match, it seemed to be that Ranger Ross was the guy that, that dominated it. It was almost like Reed just gave him a clothesline and he was finished, or the uh, shoulder block rather and finished. Um, but something I want to ask: I don't want to spoil anything. Isn't the uh, Clash of the Champions seven the show from the Army Base? Yes, it is, Lee. Ah, well, and if uh, if you've not seen that yet, you've got a lot to look forward to with uh, Ranger Ross getting a reaction as if he's the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> I, I can't either. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, something about the idea of Ranger Ross really amuses me. Oh, you'll love his opponent, too. That's all I'll say. Um, Jason... Yeah, I, I do agree that Ranger Ross needs to uh, pick a stereotype and stick to it, because um, he's he's working about three. Um, I do like that Coddle says that his chest is swelling with pride as Ranger Ross is making his entrance with his color guard and, and the camouflage, and I kind of feel like other parts of Coddle might be swelling with pride as well um, at that point, based on his excitement. Um and I agree that the um, the transition with Reed sort of kicking Ross in the face after that flurry um, that was that was good, and the flip over bump that Ross took on that shoulder block was impressive. But luckily, I only got like two minutes of it because mine was edited. So, oh, yeah, I could tell you know um, it wasn't awesome, but what I got was you know perfectly okay. <clears throat> so. Lance Russell is with Lex Luger now, um, and uh, he says it's time to put up or shut up, and I thought this was a pretty good babyface promo. Uh, probably one of the better ones we've seen from Luger. Chad, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luger was fired up. Uh, I know sometimes with Luger promos, it kind of you can sort of picture him trying to remember in the back of his head uh, what he did when he was rehearsing what to say. Uh, but here he seemed pretty natural, and it was a good uh, baby face promo before his match. So we, we uh, go into a bull rope match now with Dick Murdoch versus Bob Orton Jr., um, both grizzled veterans by this point in their career. Um, as things start out, uh, Orton is generally on top um, until Murdoch gets a couple of punches in and nails Orton with his cowboy boot. Uh, then Nick Patrick decides to confiscate the cowboy boot, um, which I didn't quite understand. Like, he didn't have to do that. Um, it's not against the rules, I don't think. Um, he ties uh, 
Murdoch ties Orton's legs together and then knocks him down, which gets the pin. Um, so that this was actually a lot shorter than you'd think. Uh, Gary Hart gets in the ring and uh, then he attacks Murdoch, and then we get a heel beat down uh, by Orton, um, and he ties uh, Murdoch's throat and then hangs him over the top rope, which could kill him. Um, so th the general line here, which is what I was thinking just as uh, Bob Coddle said it, Murdoch wins the battle, but not the war. And I thought this was interesting. This beatdown goes on for quite some time, and the commentators even say somebody needs to come out here, and no babyface comes to make the save. So, uh, I'll go to you first this time, Lee. Um, the the thing that I noticed most about this match, or what I thought about it most, was that these two guys just seem so out of place. In the NWA, 1989, they both, they just seem older than everyone, besides the Sheik. They seem, you know, Orton specifically, even though he was um, an NWA guy, years before, I was just so used to him as a WWF guy, and um, I don't know what it was, there was just something that wasn't there, because Bob Orton was a great worker, Dick Murdoch was a great worker, but I don't know if it was the age thing, but this just didn't click for me. Chad? Um, I mean, I, I still like both of these guys, and I do think they could have had uh, sort of a place on the card, even still at this time, just in sort of the, a mid-card feud. Uh, but this, this match kind of made me more furious of how much time the Ranger Ross Butch Reed thing was given because uh, they really could have used some time here that was given to the other match. What uh, that the actual act action in this match was okay, and uh, there was some good use of the stipulation where at one point Orton got posted when Murdoch pulled the uh, bull rope and he went into the post, and uh, they used the rope as the strap, and then like you said, uh, Murdoch hog tied Bob with the with the uh, bull rope to pin him in the end. Uh, and then the hanging, of course, used the bull rope too. So not a bad use of the stipulation. I thought this match was decent for what it was. It, j it just never really had a chance to develop into anything more than that for the time given. Jason, any other thoughts? Um, well, I, again, even though I know it's a super short match, I got about half of it. So, um, you know, really hard to say much other than, you know, Murdoch and Orton both, you know, it was fairly stiff and, you know, they used the stipulation fairly well. Um, interesting that, you know, Orton's a high is a, you know, obviously considered a great worker and, and, and certainly is, but um, doesn't have that many high-end matches just because of, you know, the era that he was in. Even when he was on pay-per-view matches, they were usually short and, um, you know, not real, um, not really much time given to them, and he wasn't really in any major stories. It's just kind of a kind of a fluke of history type thing where um, Orton probably isn't well as well remembered for his work just because he doesn't have the high end matches that some of his contemporaries have, or at least not well known ones. I do remember um, from our very early shows, Chad. He was pretty good in '83. I seem to remember. He may even have an MVP award from us at some point. Um, yeah, he does on that first. Uh, I think uh, Starcade '83, or maybe '84. One of those, or, or Final Conflict. One of those shows. I think it may be Starcade. 
Yeah. Um, I would I would definitely like to see more early. Uh, I, by early I mean early 80s. Uh, Bob Bob Orton because uh, he does look like a, a worker who he may have some hidden gems out there. Um, based on what Jason was saying there, that you know maybe not on pay per views, but there may be some TV matches and things that people just haven't uh, haven't seen or aren't kind of widely known about. Um, so I'm sure he does have some good matches out there, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so what happens now? Uh, Lance Russell is with Michael Hayes, who is determined to do it on his own, and um, he uses the line, "If it wasn't for people like you, there wouldn't be people like me," uh, which is one of my favourite villain arguments. <laughs> um, well, what do people think about Michael Hayes as a as a talker, as a promo? Does anybody think he's in the top ten ever, or even in the top five ever? I mean, I mean, I would say he's a great promo. Uh, top ten is something that I would have to give a lot of thought to and hash out. But I would say he would be somebody I would consider for that. Um, I mean, I, I, th- I think this promo was good. Uh, unfortunately, with Hayes at this time, and I'll discuss it further when we get to the match. But um, and and it, I mean, to me, Hayes is somebody that it's really interesting with his career in that. Uh, and and I didn't come up with this or say this. I can't remember who did. So sorry in advance. But it's it's so true. Like in the '80s, Michael P.S. Hayes is honestly one of the coolest wrestlers. I think that ever existed in a lot of ways and then it was a quick switch to where by the early 90s he was honestly one of the lamest wrestlers Mm. uh, just in the way he acted and looked so old kind of looked like the you know 35 year old man that still wanted to party with the teenagers and just out of place and dated and uh, right here tonight really showed I think maybe where that kind of flipped in some ways Jason or Lee, any thoughts on Hayes as a talker or, or even a worker? Uh, I, uh, the party was definitely over, or getting to be over at this time for Hayes, uh, as far as just working and his look goes. Um, but uh, yeah, I would echo those sentiments. I mean, he's he's great. You know, I could see him in a top ten. I'd have to you know do some serious thinking about it. Um, and. Uh, I'll talk more about the his work a- after the match, but I, um, you know, he's someone I enjoy watching, even if even in maybe his bad years, even though uh, you know I can see the flaws that you know, the things that people don't like about him as well. For me, I, I think that in his day, you know, for anyone to say that Michael Hayes was a top ten promo would would you know th- that wouldn't be any stretch. Um, of all time, you know, is something that you would need to think about. There's one promo that he gave um, at the Clash of the Champions 21 in November of 92. It was Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson against uh, Kensuke Sasaki and Eric Watts. And he did a promo where he um, said people have been asking him, is the reason that you guys are, are so aggressive towards Eric Watts, is, the, is this... Um, resentment towards Bill Watts and Hayes basically just says no I would hate the guy if his last name was Hayes and I just thought that was one of the 
one of the greatest lines that I'd ever heard. Obviously, he delivered it a lot better than I did, but then, you know, I'm not one of the top ten promos of my day. I, what, what I'll say is, if you can find the promo that he does in the Countdown show, it's really funny. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Um, okay, well, maybe we can, uh, maybe it's something to think about on another day, top ten uh, promos, but for me, I reckon he's hovering around that ten or eleven spot there. Um, although I haven't really given it a great amount of thought. Um, so, uh, next match here is the Dynamic Dudes, uh, which we've already mentioned, Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace, against the Samoan SWAT team, with Paulie Dangerously. Um, so, as this match starts, uh, Chad, uh, did you notice what I noticed here? Do you know what I'm going to say? The uh, very first spot, pretty much, where their head gets slammed to the mat and they no-sold it? I Actually, no. It's, uh, oh, okay. It's, it's Jim Ross mentioning that uh, Tommy Young is five-time referee of the year. Oh, oh we got. I, <laughs> I didn't hear it this time. I didn't catch it, but he did mention that again in the uh, championship match, and I made a note. So that means there was two references to that in this show. I th- I think one of he said six-time ref of the year. I'm pretty sure for all of like 1988. So um, maybe uh, they revoked one. Yeah, one um, of them's been revoked. I wonder what guess, for. Yeah, Tommy Tommy Young was found uh, using performance-enhancing drugs, so <laughs> they, had, they took away the plaque. We get he's, jo- he's, a, he's the Lance Armstrong of his day. <laughs> Lance Armstrong of uh, NWA referees. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Uh, Ace and Fatu start out here, um, and Ace takes advantage as he when he stamps on Fatu's foot. Um, and that should really teach him to wear some boots to the ring. Um, the dudes uh, are on top uh, for the next few minutes until Samu nails Johnny Ace with a karate kick. We get a single leg pick up and take over by Samu. Um, and then another kick from him. Uh, we get a face in peril sequence um, now. And a nice side slam by Samu. We get a scoop power slam by uh, Fatsu, hot tag to Douglas, who gets some drop kicks in, uh, but it's cut short, and Fatsu goes uh, and gets a big splash in uh, from the top. Johnny Ace breaks it up. Then the dudes get an upset win out of nowhere after Ace drop kicks Douglas on top of Fatsu. So, Jason, I'll start with you this time. Uh, I thought the the finish was really good. Um, this was another one that was edited, although you know I got at least like eight nine minutes of it, so I think I got a good portion of it. Um, the crowd seemed more into the dudes than I would um, than I would have expected. Um, they were pretty into it. Um, also, Bob Cottle is um, super excited about the good clean living of these youngsters uh, that the uh, the dudes and says some pretty super racist things about the Samoans about them belonging in cages and uh, so on and so forth so that was a nice little uh, ni- nice little uh, presentation of say 1962 in a 1989 uh, wrestling match <laughs> uh, Lee um, it's I thought it was the best match uh, on the show to this point. Um, although that would be like saying, you know, who's better out of Sean Mooney, Craig DeGeorge, and Charlie Min. Whoa, no. but, whoa, whoa. whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, I, it, 
It was okay, you know. Um, like Jason said, I, I thought the finish was good, um, but there's, I don't really have a lot to to offer about this match. It was just, it was a match. It was a nice match. It was fine, you know. And then it was gone. Chad. Yeah, th- this was pretty decent, actually. Uh, it was better than I'd say I thought. I've, I've liked the two matches of the SSTs that we've seen so far. Um, they've really kind of been pretty stiff, flying all over the ring and stuff. Uh, the dynamic dudes actually looked a lot better, too, and I agree with Jason that their reaction from the crowd was better than I would have imagined. I guess they hadn't been turned on uh, quite yet. Um, and, and then one thing, we have not talked about this part, but I always think it is like absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm kind of, I, I'll, I'll freely admit to kind of being a little weird with like hygiene and stuff like that, but, uh, but to be barefoot and to go wrestle to me has always been like one of the craziest things you could do. Like whether it be the Samoans or the Von Ericks, like I, I just don't understand how you don't constantly stub your toes or, you know, I, it just always strikes me as something that's completely crazy to do. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, well, you know what my views on uh, on these sort of gimmicks are, uh, anyway. But did anybody uh, ever see the Hurricanes, the um, <laughs> the uh, yes. soccer-based um, cartoon where they had like a team made up of like one person from every country? Um, but I seem to remember there was like a. Peru- Peruvian defender on there who didn't wear any football boots. He went, he played barefoot. Do you remember that? I, I definitely remember that. I had the uh, comic book version of it as well. It was a TV show around the mid nineties. Yeah, it was an American one. I, I, in fact, was it really? I have an idea that it was made around the time that the World Cup was on in uh, right. Yeah, trying to drum up some local support. Obviously, they still didn't give a shit, but still. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard of that. So <laughs> same, yeah, not exactly. Yeah, not exactly a big hit over here. I was watching Regrets, so it wasn't Sorry. a big hit here, here either. To be honest, it's just uh, one of those little things I remember being on. Um, okay. I always thought it was slightly, slightly racist that the that the guy from South America wasn't wearing any boots. Um, so yeah, I I don't really have any thoughts about this match other than um, I think Samu is a pretty decent little worker. Um, that's the, that's the thing that uh, struck me about the Samoan. He he's obviously the leader of that team um, from a work rate point of view at this point. Um, yeah. And we obviously we know uh, Fatu will go on to have uh, a longer, you know, a long career and develop into being a decent worker himself. He's he's not bad at this point, but uh, I think Samu is clearly the, the more experienced guy. Um, we get a hype video for Flair versus Steamboat now, uh, to the strains of it's the final countdown. Um, and, well, I mean, I didn't really understand this because we're basically getting a shell for a show that we're already watching and presumably are paid for. So I don't understand uh, why they were showing this. Um, but it was a pretty good summary of the feud to date because uh, they basically showed all of the dates and the key events that happened with the dates. I don't remember seeing um, seeing a kind of summary of a feud uh, with dates like that before. And this is just before the Oak Ridge Boys concert. Jesus Christ. Um, so the only thing I can say about this is that as I was fast forwarding, as I was pressing fast forward and trying to get past it, I couldn't believe how long it went on. They didn't just give these guys like one or two numbers. They were there for 
half an hour. So. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is like almost a, uh, I mean, it, it's almost like they sort of build this pay-per-view as a kind of half-concert, half-wrestling event, which that's not a crossover in regards to the Oak Ridge Boys that I would imagine, uh, but uh, whatever, <laughs> I guess the, the we saw uh, I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it was in the middle of the show. That kind of changes my feelings on it, because if we're at the end, that'd be one thing. But in the middle of the show, kind of interrupting the flow of the show, and, you know, of I'm sure that the vast majority of those people were not excited to see the Oak Ridge Boys. Some of them may have been, and some of them may have been okay with it, but I, I do kind of feel like that's, that's, that, that's asking for trouble. The, the only thing I'll say is that I did notice during this show, I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but um, there was a lot more women in the crowd than you usually see. There was a lot of women in the crowd. Um, and it occurred to me a couple of times, and it, I did, I've only just made the connection that it could be that there were a lot of women there to see the Oak Ridge Boys. Um, although they didn't look particularly like the sort of group that women would like or, or anything, but um, it was just a thought. Did anybody else I'll know? Just say, I'll just say that I would have found it a lot more palatable in the middle of the show if it had been the West Texas Rednecks. <laughs> so, um, Lance Russell is with three former NWA champions who will judge the final match. Luthers, Pat O'Connor, and Terry Funk. The main takeaway from this is that they're going to be judging uh, offense uh, and rewarding that. Um, although I did notice that Luthers and Terry Funk kind of disagree a little bit on... Um, how this is going to affect things. Um, Lee Thayers thinks it's going to go the full 60 minutes. Terry Funk thinks that because the judges are going to drive the offense um, on, we're going to get a finish before the 60 minutes, which is quite interesting little disagreement there. They didn't make anything of it, but um, I noticed it. C kind of rare to see three former champs lined up like this. Did you enjoy it, anyone? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think uh, at least they had distinguished individuals that if you were an older fan, you could appreciate that they had three uh, reputable men to uh, to judge this match, especially since the last time we had judges in a match, you had Jason Harvey and, Linda and uh, actresses and Who's stuff like that. Patty Mullen, Playmate of the Year. Uh, yeah. or, I'm sorry, Pet of the Year. <laughs> pet of, pet the, of year. the Year. That's right. Yes. So, yes. uh, did, didn't Linda Curry uh, do some judging as well? Or my, did she do something else? Chad? Do what now? Linda Curry, was she a judge or was she, was she just a co-host? No, she was the, uh, yeah, she was the guest uh, commentator on the Super Town show. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, okay, um, so... Now we get the now we get uh, the strains of Freebird by uh, Leonard Skinner, come and Michael Hayes uh, comes out, and Lex Luger comes out, flanked by four black guys, which I thought was a bit unusual. Uh, was was I missing something there? Were these a particular type of were these army guys or something? Or uh, I didn't really understand that. I, I, I didn't notice any 
I didn't quite get it either. But um, Michael Hayes is uh, with Hiro Matsuda, who seems like he should just be gone at this point. What's he? What's he doing? Um, like he wasn't mentioned. He wasn't in any of the promos. The commentators don't seem to quite understand what he's doing there. Um, but there he is. Um, still hanging around. And I get the impression that he was just kind of hanging around the back and thought, well, I might as well do something for my money here, and decided to turn up. Um, Luger is uh, pretty psyched for this match as things start out. Um, Michael Hayes does some strutting. Nick uh, Patrick stops uh, Lex Luger using his fists um, at, at one point in this match. Now, I don't really watch the current WWE, but... Um, does that still happen? The referee stop the clenched fist being used, or do punches just get left alone as normal moves now? Yeah, I mean punches pretty much are left alone, and I mean I think even in this time it was only enforced when they wanted it to become a narrative of the match in itself. I mean, obviously in Memphis and the NWA and in every territory. In 1989, there was tons of punches being thrown, See, uh, whether they were legally or not. As I saw this spot, for some reason, I my mind just went on a little wonder. And I thought, what if there was like a angle where you had a general manager who decided, kind of Bill Watts style, to lay down the law. And every time somebody used the clenched fist, he'd come out and call for a DQ. And like he did that. See, like, that's, the, to me, that I've, I've played that scenario out in my head before and to me that sounds like either a memphis type deal uh that i could see or, or really the person i could have seen that could have done that would have been chris jericho in like 1998 when he was dealing with dean malenko kind of in that stage where yeah malenko comes out and is pissed off and like punches him in the face and jericho like gets the rule book and immediately asks for a dq uh something in that regard there's actually um, there was a brief time when um, when Flair was co-owner uh, in 2002, and right after the split, and he turned heel. Um, there's a match or two where Austin was not allowed to punch, um, use punches during the match. Flair might have even been the referee or so. It didn't really go anywhere because that was around the time Austin walked out, and they did the. Uh, Quick, quickie turn again, and then had Vince own both shows. But um, so WWE at least experimented with it, and I recall at least one match they did with it being pretty entertaining. Yeah, I I think it could be something like it would never happen in a million years. But bring in Jim Cornette as a general manager for like a three month period, and he starts becoming like a real major kind of old school NWA guy you know, insisting, like, over-the-top rope, instant DQ, <laughs> clenched fist, instant DQ, and, like, literally making sure, like, you'd have, like, massive matches on paper, you know, I don't know what a big match would be these days, but, you know, CM Punk versus Cena or something, and he's like, stops it after a minute because somebody uses a clenched fist, and the fans boo him and all the rest of it. It would never happen, but I play the scenario in my mind. Um... So we get a Russian leg, leg sweep by Hayes uh, here, and Teddy Long is back with his notepad. Um, we get a big backdrop by Luger. Hayes is on top for the next few minutes, uh, and he goes for the DDT, but Luger evades. And this is um, 
really something that they've been talking about in commentary, that the story of this match really is the DDT versus the torture rack, uh, which does come to bear a little bit later. So this is an early tease for the DDT. We get a wrist lock sequence by Luger, um, who goes into an arm bar. He does an arm drag. Uh, Luger looks pretty good here. Um, he gets uh, a backbreaker, and then he goes back to the arm. The transition comes when Luger misses a crossbody and goes over the top in quite a massive bump for Lex Luger to be taking. Um, Hayes uh, takes it outside, and then he suplexes him back in. He gets a bulldog for two, uh, and then he, a chin lock. Hayes is on top now for the next few minutes, but he poses a bit too much, um, which Bob Coddle doesn't like, uh, which allows uh, Luger basically to catch his breath, and he comes back uh, after Hayes misses a, another bulldog. Uh, Luger gets a clothesline, a military press, three different times, uh, and then he goes for the torture rack, and I, I literally thought this was going to be it, this was going to be the finish, but Hayes gets a DDT out of nowhere, um, and then we get a ref bump, Terry Gordy is here, he pushes Hayes on top of Luger, and oh my god, new US champion, Michael P.S. Hayes. Uh, which actually surprised me, because I, I had forgotten that he actually won the belt. So, what do you think of this one? I'll go, I'll go to you first, uh, Chad, being the resident uh, guy who's massive on Lex Luger. Um, I, this match kind of floated in and out to me from being uh, pretty good to uh kind of kind of pretty bad um i'm kind of interested to hear from jason if this match was edited because uh it went about 16 minutes and uh there was a lot of kind of chin locks and uh other stuff that could have definitely been edited from this match i think it have been a lot better as like a tight uh 11 12 minutes the work uh when they got going uh, and going down to the ending segment was really good uh really from when Hayes kind of went for the bulldog and Luger threw him off uh from there on I thought Luger looked good with the power slam holding up Hayes for a long time I mean Hayes was a uh he's a he's a tall guy and he's a pretty big guy and Luger power slammed him up and held him for probably three to five seconds and then Hayes got that good flex DDT to kind of neutralize both men. The finish with uh, Gordy coming out, uh, I didn't have a problem with because that set up the Freebirds coming in and reuniting together. Uh, the ref bump, though, was terrible that Nick Patrick took. He, I, I don't know if it was the wind or what that blew him over, but he just barely got nicked, uh, and then he fell to the ground like he'd been shot with a gun. Uh, so this match I would classify as decent, um, but but not much more than that because of the rest holds, and I thought the action was kind of directionless for a while, and I was kind of disappointed, to be honest, because I thought uh, if Hayes had his working boots on and the development we'd seen from Luger, I thought this could have been a, a, at least a good match. So. Jason, it makes sense to go to you next, given what you um, asked. Yeah, I I think I got the full version or or close to it. I didn't notice any obvious cuts in it, and in my it seemed about the right length. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I thought that Luger took Hayes' offense real well and and, and made it look good. Um, I thought Hayes did a nice job of like blending in the the shtick and you know and 
and being the heel stuff, and also had some pretty good, um, you know, had some stuff that looked pretty good. And I thought the it, it built well to the finish, like you said, other than the ref bump looking bad and a couple of rough spots. So um, yeah, there was definitely some points that were that seemed a little aimless, but um, for the most part, um, I was cool with it. I also did very much enjoy uh, Michael Hayes's uh, armbands with tassels. That was a uh, that was a very nice look on uh, his part. Lee? Yeah, a few points. Um, very early on, there was a... Um, you actually mentioned the leg sweep, which was just... For those two guys, was it just looked completely amateur hour. But um, the thing that infuriated me, really, was the amount... I mean, I don't mind it once or twice in a match, but they would... They cut to the crowd quite a lot. And... You know, I think if it, if you're in a double down and you show um, a section of your crowd going crazy and, and really excited, that's fine. But there was one particular um, right around the backdrop that was quite early. They just cut to a guy drinking, just just a steady shot of a guy, you know, slurping a sprite or whatever. <laughs> oh, that was no sprightly. <laughs> <laughs> I I I found that infuriating. Um, as, as far as the match, I, I like the finish a lot. Um, it actually reminded me of the Bulldogs and the Dream Team on Saturday night's main event where um, Valentine and Dynamite collided head-to-head and Valentine just happened to be the guy that fell on top. Um, obviously here, um, Terry Gordy was there to, to assist Michael Hayes, but I like the fact that Michael Hayes was still out, was still unconscious, like he didn't know um, what had happened. I thought that was good. I thought that protected Luger um in a way you know beyond just um Nick Patrick going down um as f- as far as like the entire body of the match i mean yeah there were there were good points there were times where it was very exciting but there was a lot of um sitting in chin locks and and things like that and there was a lot of michael hayes obviously michael hayes one of the things that he comes in for a lot of flack for is um his stalling and things like that and and that kind of thing Gets a gets a great reaction from the live crowd, but isn't always particularly interesting to watch, you know, at home. Um, so I would say it was it was a good match, generally speaking, but kind of like um, Two Cold Scorpio's cock, it was just so long. <laughs> I do apologise for that. Got, James got Dixon, drag uh, things in the gutter. <laughs> yeah, I have to apologise for that. I, I did mention James Dixon, who writes these books with me, these Coliseum guides, was it? Was a pro wrestler and uh, has vouched for the uh, the allegations that Mick Foley made about Scorpio in his book. So I thought I'd throw that in. Um, one thing I've been forgetting to do uh, throughout the show is giving you the this one thing we we often do is uh, I give you the Dave Meltzer ratings from his original review back in 1989. Um, so I, I thought real quick I'll, I'll just go through the first five matches and uh, tell you what um, tell you what he gave them. He gave Muta versus uh, Doug Gilbert, two stars, uh, which seems quite high for a squash match. Um, he gives uh, Reed, Ranger Ross, a quarter of a star. Half a star to Murdoch versus Orton. Um, Dudes versus Simone Swat team, two and three quarters. And then this match, he gave three stars. Um, Ed, all of you sound like you'd be lower than three stars on this. Would you agree? Yeah. 
I, I'd, I'd probably go two and a half, maybe. Yeah, I'd be about two and a half as well. That's in, that's interesting to me. I'm the I'm the major outlier here because I like this and I've given it. I, I'd go higher than that. I'd go maybe three and a half. Um, and the reason I like it is because it tells such a coherent little story. That you know, it's DDT versus torture rack, and that the moment where he goes for the torture rack, I think that I actually thought that was the finish there, and that DDT that comes out of nowhere kind of surprised me. And then the finish was genuinely surprising, uh, I thought. So um, I kind of slipped into watching it as a just as a regular fan, I guess. Um, and I thought the drama worked pretty well. Um, I also thought that, I mean, this is something we can talk about now, Chad, uh, and uh, we can come back to the conversation we were having earlier, but I thought this was quite interesting, the see Hayes pushed as a singles guy here. And in some ways, you can make an argument for this moment right here being his peak as a singles wrestler, you know, as a as a guy on his own. What do we think about that? Um, I mean, I would say maybe. Uh, uh, I guess there's two thoughts. I, I would say definitely on kind of in a major. Promotion, whether you want to talk about uh, even a, a, a national promotion is probably the best word. So, uh, as far as AWA, they're stint there. Uh, Bill Watts, because he was national by that point in the UWF when Hayes was in there. And uh, in the NWA, this will probably be his peak uh, as a singles worker. I, I mean, beyond, uh, and now I'll preface this by saying I have no idea, like, how big of a single star Hayes was in like Gulf Coast when he was first starting out. Uh, but as far the only other time I would know for sure that I do think Hayes was a pretty big single star, uh, was actually kind of in the 83, uh, time period. And he was teaming with the Freebirds a lot. That was right in the heat of the Freebirds versus the Von Erics. But, uh, but Hayes, I think, as a single also was very valuable because in that feud, they really used him as kind of a catalyst for the whole feud. And he was the one that they would, uh, they would kind of work up towards too, would be the, the eventual singles match versus Hayes. And then, uh, his, his loser leave town cage match with Kerry was also a very, uh, very profitable match. So that's the only other time period. Uh, that I know of that I, I would say would kind of compete with this. And, and I, I just remembered, he, he, he when he was on commentary, he did keep on making a point about saying that him and JYD sold out the, uh, or had like the record attendance crowd in New Orleans as well. Right, right. Now, I don't know with that. Uh, I actually need to do some research on after the blinding angle, whether that was him as a singles or if that was a... Uh, combination of the free birds versus JYD and somebody else I actually don't know that but that if that was a singles that certainly would be in contention as well yeah uh, I'm pretty sure that was a singles match but but the free birds were together at that point um right also um uh Hayes had a program with Flair in 87 I, I don't know how extensive it was but but he was, and I think he was pretty much singles at that point, but I don't think it lasted too long. But I know, I recall a promo, um, you know, on uh, WCW Saturday Night of um, 
you know, uh, uh, and I I know they did some house shows and stuff, but um, so that could be obviously him against the world champion, you know, could be a contender as well. All right, guys. Um, the other major talking point before we move on from uh, Hayes is this question of when the moment came when he went from being cool to being ridiculously uncool. Now, there was some suggestion earlier that um, this moment was kind of happened tonight. Was that you who said that, Chad? Yeah, that was me. Um, and I just think... From that, I, I just think this, uh, with me not being uh, too high on this match, and and uh, I, I think a lot of that is directed in the point that they gave Hayes this, uh, you know, this will be the second most prestigious singles title in the company. Uh, so they give it to him here on this show. And, uh, and, and I don't think that the reaction was great for that. And to me, he didn't look like in this match and just in the way he presented himself as somebody that you could really push as that major of a star before. And, uh, I'm kind of interested to see if Meltzer, uh, goes into detail on what happens with this because as, as we'll see, it, it is a very short title reign. Mm. For uh, for Michael Hayes, uh, he holds the belt for 15 days um, and gives it back to Luger. So by the next show, uh, Clash Seven, Luger has regained the U.S. Championship, and that was on a house show where that title change took place. So I I just think um um and and we'll see the Freebirds team up and they have they have a big run. But I know in just completing my 90s footage watching, uh, it's not to say that. The Freebirds never had a, a a good match in the nineties because they still could go and have when they wanted to they could go and have good matches in the nineties but uh, they they just look really lame and all the vignettes them coming out with like the jukebox performing concerts uh, I, especially by the time he gets Garvin as his partner. And he has that really like strung out hair, and they were wearing mostly the red cut tights. Um, by that time, he was they they really had lost their way, and I think this uh, just in what I watched on this show, I saw a lot of glimpses of that. There was a pretty. I think the question. I think the question is: Would you rather see a concert from the Freebirds or from the Oak Ridge Boys? <laughs> There was a pretty funny moment on commentary when uh, Jim Ross says that uh, Michael Hayes is in the shape of his life, and Bob Coddle just turns to him without even thinking and says, "Really? <laughs> Did anybody else pick up on that?" <laughs> well, 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 Hayes's tights in this match too. We should mention didn't do him any favors. He was wearing some like blue tights, and then his like arm bands or whatever had kind of the tassels hanging down from them. Uh, looked like he was about to direct a marching band. Is what he looked like to me. It looked pretty silly, but uh, it, it this certainly was not the best shape I've seen him in. No. Well, we'll uh, Chad, you and I will return to this at the start of our Clash Seven show because uh, I'm sure Meltzer will have a few thoughts in the in the forthcoming uh, newsletters on this. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage for Cowboy Bill Watts. And the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>